This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 13th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. As Justice Stevens steps down, what was his record on political speech and other rights enshrined by the First Amendment? At best, says John Samples, director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government, Stevens was an inconsistent defender of the First Amendment. At worst, Samples believes Stevens was just broadly deferential to government power. Tony Morrow, uh, writing for the First Amendment Center, says that Justice Stevens was a friend of the First Amendment, and he quotes Stevens as having said in 1993 that the five clauses of the First Amendment, quote, combine to form a whole larger than its parts in a way that, quote, advances a broader concept of liberty. Could you just evaluate that? Well, it's a striking comment that you essentially the judge is reading into the actual language of the Constitution, this so-called broader concept of liberty, which I think and there's a fair amount of evidence uh, with Justice Stevens in his career, uh, runs the risk of the judge actually reading their own uh, values or ideas into the Constitution. The judges in that case uh, lack constraint, uh, the constraint that can be given by the text of the Constitution. And it's not surprising. I think Justice Stevens, uh, in his career, the one thing that stands out is he really was extremely deferential to what government wanted to do, even in core areas like uh, speech and uh, sort of political rights that were thought to be uh, protected, even if economic liberties weren't. Uh, So it's not surprising in that case that he would have to find another concept of liberty that wasn't actually in the Constitution but was said to be there. In Texas v. Johnson, the famous flag-burning case, Stevens wrote a dissent, and the dissent basically argued that far from being an expression of speech, burning a flag was conduct, therefore fully regulatable, uh, because burning a flag represented a degradation, a destruction of a national asset, that is the, the, the flag itself, the idea of the flag itself. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, one of the things you can also see in in Justice Stevens' career is a tendency to uh, define the area of speech quite narrowly and what's outside of speech, conduct or property. Uh, In the campaign finance cases, he was always saying speech is this little thing and property has no connection to them. And of course, in the the flag-burning case, uh, it's conduct, and conduct can be regulated by the state. This goes to my point. Uh, there's a, an intellectual habit there in Justice Stevens, I think, to be quite deferential uh, and to define the cases and the, and the issues in ways that uh, legitimate government regulation. I believe it was Cardozo who said that we should be concerned uh, to some extent about using metaphors when it comes to judicial interpretations. Here we have uh, taking this idea of an expression mm-hmm. that is burning a flag. Uh, a lot of people would say, oh, well, that's, it's, that's uh, very similar to speech is money or right. money is speech. 
Well, that's a metaphor. But Stevens here is clearly using a metaphor in describing burning a flag as this destruction of a, of a national asset. Yes, to speak as that as a, uh, a national asset. It, uh, you get the sense in Texas v. Johnson that he belie- believed that the, he saw it as the nation itself being attacked in its ideals and its, in the metaphoric expression uh, in the national flag. Um, and given that, you know, he was willing again to allow the regulation. Money and speech, you know, he, he, uh, his famous statement not uh, 10 years ago that money is not speech, it is money. Um, and in that case, he wasn't ready to allow the, the uh, metaphor, even though I would argue that that's not, and, and he didn't really seem to acknowledge this at all, that no one is really saying that money is speech. People are, have said from the beginning that money is connected to speech in vital ways. And that really had no uh, uh, recognition from Justice Stevens at all during his career. Where else has Stevens come down in terms of uh, the what ought to be, I mm-hmm. think, considered a broad range of rights mm-hmm. uh, under the, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution? Well, he, uh, in, in some ways, he's best known for his campaign finance uh, jurisprudence and became certainly better known as time went on for that, uh, in part because he takes uh, a quite radical position uh, particularly in the last decade of his time on the court. And I think in Justice Stevens, what you see is in the case of one justice, uh, where uh, where the court might have gone had it not recognized that money was connected to speech. Um, justice Stevens had one case back in the late 70s where he sided with the majority, and strangely enough, it was one where... Uh, the corporate right to contribute and run advertising in a ballot campaign was vindicated against uh, a Massachusetts law. Justice Stevens was in the majority in that case. He was on the side of the corporations or the corporation in Massachusetts. Uh, That was the last time, really, that in the campaign finance case that he did that. Uh, Thereafter, he really uh, took the position that basically he was going to be deferential to government regulation of money and politics. Uh, he wrote a concurring opinion in, in a case that's now been uh, struck down, Austin versus uh, uh, Michigan Chamber of Commerce. And throughout all of these decisions of this period, what you see is every justification for regulating uh, money and politics uh, was accepted by uh, Justice Stevens. Equality, corruption, uh, saving people from the burdens of fundraising, uh, just virtually anything that had been said, equal access even, equal access to the uh, campaigns and uh, things that had been, you know, disallowed really by Buckley versus Vallejo. And I think it came down ultimately in the year 2000, he gave a very short statement of his views, which was the idea that um, money is money. It's not really connected to speech in any important way. Now, this is important because for a New Deal liberal like uh, Justice Stevens, 
The crucial decision is that in Caroline Products, uh, going back to 1937, where the New Deal court said, look, we're not going to regulate property, uh, we're not going to strike down regulations of property or economic liberty, but we're going to protect the political system from, uh, from government. Justice Stevens pushed money in politics, in campaign finance, over into the economic category. And what that meant was that the government could regulate it just about any way it saw fit. Um, that path had been rejected in Buckley versus Vallejo. Had it not been, uh, it would uh, we would have seen a Stevens-like uh, jurisprudence. And I think just about any kind of regulation of campaign finance would have been upheld. And also, uh, one for, for the point, it's pretty clear that Justice Stevens uh, was strongly influenced by a judge named Skelly Wright, who right after uh, uh, Buckley versus Vallejo wrote a, a long article that said, you know, this money is not speech. The government should have the right to regulate money in politics. And he was the standard bearer for that, but the striking thing was he was basically alone in that position. Uh, he was, in the end, a New Deal liberal who said yes to economic regulation, but also wanted to extend it into the fields of First Amendment rights, as a, compared to someone like J uh, William Brennan, who in Texas v. Johnson was on the other side protecting expressive conduct. Uh, Justice Stevens, in the end, was alone, and I think that's pretty good for the country. And his deferential views toward government, I think, in the end, we have to say, were not really part of the office or role of a judge in a society that protects rights. John Samples is director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government. He is author of the new Cato book, The Struggle to Limit Government. You can get your copy at Cato.org.